Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I'm joined by guest Margot Trudell to talk about, uh, I would sort of summarize it as the business of art or how to make a business as an artist. Uh, so Margot, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. For folks who perhaps haven't encountered you before, what can, uh, what can you tell us about your background and, and where you're at? So I'm a graphic designer based in Toronto. Uh, I've been working as a graphic designer and art director in various design studios, ad agencies, and in-house. That's working one-on-one with clients in their office for close to 10 years now. And I also run a lot of programs in Toronto for, <clears throat> excuse me, local designers to meet each other within the community and advance their career in terms of networking and skill. Great. That's perfect. Um, okay. So for the dear listener, the context of this phone call is that uh, geez, when was it? Earlier this month, September 3rd, I guess it was, right around there, uh, 2019, I sent out an email called Know How Knitting Edition, parenthetically. And it was essentially to just summarize it, it was about the difference between selling yourself as someone who, who does a thing. In this case, it was knitting. It was like, I knit sweaters to, um, to, uh, perceiving yourself identity wise and also selling yourself as someone who knows how to do those things, which in my opinion, dramatically broadens the types of value that you can produce for people who are interested in that thing. So, you know, let's call them your clients could be customers or guests. It depends on what you do, but let's say you have clients and you're used to doing something like building WordPress. I build beautiful WordPress sites for my clients and generally, this is sort of just in general, but generally what happens is that people have a skill like that and they sell the skill like that and they typically start doing that on an hourly basis. So they say, hey, anybody need a beautiful WordPress website or a fast WordPress website or or an iOS app, whatever it is. And somebody says, yeah, I could use that. What's your hourly rate? And you say a hundred bucks or 200 bucks or whatever. And you get to work doing the craft. I usually refer to it as your craft or your discipline. And that's fine uh, as far as it gets you, but it doesn't get you that far. And what ends up happening is a combination of things. It's a combination of the hourly billing. It's a combination of only doing execution work. Uh, But there are other kinds of work you can do and other ways to price your services, other ways to package your services. And, And the point of the email was to get people to start thinking about like, I'm not just someone who does this thing. I'm someone who's kind of an expert at it compared to my clients. And I know how to do things that perhaps I could just coach them on, or I could train them on, or I could, um, uh, give their employees a course, or I could oversee some project in which my craft is being executed by other people. And I'm, you know, as an elder statesman of, or stateswoman of this craft, I can sort of guide them. And so they don't step on landmines and increase their chances of success. Okay. So that's the premise of the, the email and, uh, Margo, what you wrote back, uh, I can, I'll just try and summarize it. It's not long, but, um, uh, the response basically was, do all these offerings really involve a lot of knitting though? Because in my, in my email, I claimed that you'd still get tons of exposure to doing this thing. You'd still be doing the thing that you love doing quite a bit. Uh, you really wouldn't be decreasing that much. Uh, so you wrote back, do you, do all of these offerings really include a lot of knitting though? seems like, uh, seems mostly like writing, planning, marketing, budgeting, etc. Thinking from the perspective of someone who loves to knit while all those things are knitting related and you get to talk about knitting to other knitting enthusiasts, you're actually knitting less. And if you're an artist who makes sweaters because they love it, it seems like you're doing less of what you enjoy, even if it's more profitable. Does this mean, so, okay, so that's one thought that I have a a pretty strong opinion about pretty, I think a pretty good answer for the next line is, is I think a little, uh, a little bit of a tangent, but I'm interested in hearing why you think they're similar or or why you put them both in the same email. Uh, and what you wrote was, does this mean that it's impossible for artists like this to make money on the work that they do or is the only way to make a real living doing work adjacent to their thing. Thanks for insights. Really enjoy the newsletter. Okay. Long preamble for me. So (laughs) that's, that's the overall context. Uh, so the word that really jumps out at me toward the end there is artists. So as you, you started by saying that you've been a graphic designer for 10 years in Toronto and you sort of lead 
uh, commu- you know, local communities. Do you consider yourself or do they consider themselves artists or designers? Or do you think that's the same thing? Um, they're definitely different things. And I think uh, figuring out the definition or the difference between design and art is like a whole other podcast. It's a very confusing Venn diagram that never really stays the same. Um, but as for individuals, I won't say that all designers consider themselves artists, but I do think many of them do. Um, and that's because we'll do work for clients or at our agencies or whatever. And then we'll go home and we'll make stuff that we just enjoy. And uh, often that doesn't always have a client or even necessarily a purpose behind it. It's just something we wanted to try. Um, and that's where kind of the, art, the line between art and design gets fuzzy. But also, um, just I, I know a lot of creative people within this community, and they're designers by day, and then anything else by night. They are knitters, and they're painters, and there's so many other things. So and I think a lot of them, you know, they're being creative people. Um, getting into design as a career, they obviously wanted a career in the arts, and design can pay pretty well. Uh, but sometimes they just really enjoy that painting or that sculpting or what have you that much more and they think oh wouldn't it be great if I could make a living off of just making my weird abstract sculptures but they don't see a way to do that <laughs> um, for some of for a lot of reasons but for ones that I address in my email as well sure well you're preaching to the choir because I'm a songwriter who plays guitar so it's like you know but that's and and I did that as as a career path for many years and uh, you know so I get it I get the I get the feeling I, I understand that um, so thanks for that feedback. I do agree. I especially agree that the Venn diagram of artists and designers is, you know, if it overlaps, it's like day versus night more so than like, it's the same thing. Uh, it might be the same person in different roles, but I don't see, um, anyway, we agree. (laughs) Um, so let's loop back to the, the, the bulk of the question. So, uh, the examples that I gave in my email, uh, of things that someone who views themselves as someone who knits beautiful sweaters, just as an analog for all of these other sort of creative pursuits. Uh, the options I gave w- were, um, she could knit sweaters and try to find people to sell them to. So just purely like basically knitting a product and selling the product. Uh, she could do com- custom commission work where people would say, Hey, I want a particular kind of sweater. Uh, could you make it to these specifications, this colorway, this, um, weight yarn, this size, uh, and she could mend other people's sweaters, which is, which is a reach. Like I couldn't even hardly think of three things that you could do as a sort of call it professional knitter, um, where, where all you did was knit or, or the vast majority of time you spent knitting. Um, and so you point out, you know, do, do these other offerings like creating sweater patterns and selling them on Ravelry or launching a video knitting course and selling it on Udemy or uh, writing a knitting how-to book and selling it on Amazon, so on and so forth. Like, so things that are like more info producty or uh, in-person workshops and drop-in knitting, you know, sessions and those sorts of things. Um, your point about you know, those, it seems like doing those things would, would be mostly writing, planning, marketing, budgeting, and thinking, you know, as you said, thinking from the perspective of someone who loves to knit, while all those things are knitting related, uh, you're actually knitting less. So let's talk, so really what it boils down to, I think, is the percentages. Would you be, it, here's, here's what I would posit having, you know, cause the, the email was about my wife. So I like have a, a front row seat to her particular example. And I also have a front row seat to this from my consulting business when I used to develop mobile applications and mobile web applications. And then I started consulting on that. And my experience in both cases is that, uh, you are correct. You actually do less of the thing. You do less coding, you do less knitting, but the part that you're doing less of is the tedious, boring part that you don't like anyway. And that the, the stuff that's left over is the really fun cutting edge stuff. So perhaps it's just our two personalities. And I've seen this with students as well. It could just be a personality thing where, um, folks do truly you know, are doing so much of the thing. I'm just going to keep saying knitting. they're doing so much knitting that it's not always fun. You know, if you're, if you're knitting for 40 hours a week and you really 
love that, you know, God bless you. But it's hard for me to imagine doing anything 40 hours a week and being like, I, I need to do more of this. I'm not getting enough of this. It's pretty hard for me to imagine. I, I'm sure people are out there that are in that situation. Uh, but I mean, does that track at all? Like, can you, have you uh, had situations where, you know, you do this thing that you love, you know, with me, it'd be do running open mics with, you know, solo singer, guitarist running an open mic. Yeah, that's super fun most of the time, but there's plenty of grunt work that's a real drag. You know, is that, do you see any parallels in your world or like what you were thinking about when you asked the question, does that track at all? Um, I think I can see what you're saying. Yeah, if your knitting business, it, you know, requires you to churn out 40 sweaters a month or something, you're going to be knitting a lot and that might be quite tedious. And I think the artists that I'm thinking of when I pose this question, um, they enjoy making their thing, whether it's knitting a sweater or carving something or whatever it is. Um, but what they also really enjoy is the experimentation in that process. So they're not making 40 identical sweaters. They're making maybe 40 sweaters, but with different patterns and different colors and different types of yarn and different needles and that kind of thing. And um, that's what they really enjoy is that kind of creative exploration. But it's still, um, it's still that which they enjoy and not the, you know, the marketing or writing a newsletter or updating a website or taking photos or whatever to make those sales. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. And that experimental stuff is the stuff that you get to keep doing because you have a lot of time left over from not having to do the tedious parts of it. So with, with coders, it's, it's really a, a clear, it, I think any coder listening to this is going to recognize what I'm talking about when they think about there's a fun part of the problem. There's a fun part of the project that's usually in the beginning or perhaps will crop up throughout the project, but there's a huge, like at least 80% of the project. Okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe 60%, but the majority of the project is a slog of like, okay, I figured this out and that was super fun. And I finally figured out what this bug was, or I finally got over this hump or I created this architecture. Or I created this new design or this plan for migration of the data or whatever. And then, okay, now go do it. And uh, there's a, there's a point of diminishing returns when you're, you're still, you know, from the outside, it looks like you're still doing the same thing. You're still at the keyboard or whatever you're still knitting, but mentally you're not learning anything. It's just executing this rote task over and over and over. And I, I in my experience, you get a lot of that rote repetitive stuff that someday a robot will do. Uh, that's the stuff that diminishes and the stuff that stays is the really fun stuff where you're figuring out new things and testing things on the cutting edge and experimenting and doing R and D type of stuff. And, uh, that that's, and I think that's, you, it sounds like you think that's the fun part. And I think that's the fun part. And to me, when you're moving into a, a higher level kind of position where you're, you're selling your know-how and you know, your brains instead of your hands, you have to keep up to date with that stuff and you do that through experimentation. It's fun. Now, the other side of this question is, is, is the other side of that section is pretty interesting though. So where you talk about, um, you're kind of talking about what, what would take the place of getting rid of the tedious work, you know, and you're like, well, it seems like you'd have to write or plan or market or budget, or you didn't say this, but you know, create videos, figure out how to use a camera, uh, figure out how to record a podcast, figure out how to create a PDF out of a pattern and do all of these barely, if at all related to knitting types of activities where you have to learn how to do business stuff and create info products, let's say. Um, and that's where, that's where I start to switch into tough love mode a little bit where it's like, if, if this is a hobby, like for me playing guitar or martial arts is another one I'm never going to be like a famous martial artist. I couldn't care less about that. Um, if, if it's a hobby, it's a hobby and you just do the thing and you, you love it. And that's that, you know, it fulfills you in whatever ways that it does. But if you are trying to make a business, if you decide that I'm going to take this hobby for real, I'm going to turn it into a business. You're not going to, not, I don't mean you, but people aren't going to succeed if they don't take it seriously as a business and businesses have certain parts to them, the same way a sweater has certain parts to it. You have to have certain things. If you want the business to be, you know, a thriving business, you want it to grow, you want to live off of it. 
And those things include marketing, for example. They include sales. They include production and operations. Uh, they include strategy and uh, setting a vision and having goals. And, and none of those things are knitting. I, you, you got me on that one. <laughs> but they all absolutely have to exist inside of a business. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I mean, obviously, that's how business is able to survive. Um, I think... And it's interesting that if you come to this as, you know, big knitting enthusiast, if you really love that and you think, well, I'd like to make a living doing this, this is all I want to do, and then you develop a business um, around knitting, then you realize I have to do all this marketing and so on kind of work. Um, If you're not the kind of person that might find joy in doing that, like I enjoy doing that kind of work because I don't mind not doing as much graphic design in favor of doing all this extra businessy stuff because I do enjoy it, but not everybody does. So... In order to kind of give yourself a life where you're focusing just on this one passion from knitting, for example, do you have to be the kind of person that's entrepreneurial? Or is this kind of life only available to those who are, um, if not having those marketing skills and business skills, they're willing to develop them? Or um, is it kind of one or the other? Is it you have to be entrepreneur, business owner, and then you can have this business around knitting? Or if you're not that kind of person, then you're going to be stuck doing whatever other job while knitting on the side. I mean, I, I'm sure it's not quite that simple a dichotomy, but it kind of seems that way. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I kind of have two answers to it. So on the one hand, um, if you're a knitter, you love it. You think, hey, everybody tells me I'm good at this. Uh, I, want it, I want to do this more. I'd like to make a living at it. That, that particular phrasing scares me a little bit because what what they're not what the person is not explicitly saying is I want to turn this into a business is slightly different. And I think if more, more people thought of it, like, okay, I am going to start a knitting business, then they would be a little bit more realistic about what it might take to go into that rather than thinking, Oh, maybe this I'll do a side hustle and maybe sell a few, a few sweaters and, and maybe it'll be some side money and maybe it'll take off. Maybe magically I'll get lucky and it'll take off. And, and that's, to me, that's, that's overly wishful thinking. So on the one hand, if you want to start a business, start a business, don't fool yourself into thinking that you're going to, your hobby is suddenly going to pay your mortgage. It's not going to magically, it's just not going to happen. So, Okay. But that said, you don't necessarily, if you say, I want to start, I love knitting. I'm going to start a knitting business. You don't necessarily have to do everything. If you know what your strengths and weaknesses are, and unlike you, Margo, they don't, this mysterious person, let's call it Erica. If she doesn't want to do marketing, she doesn't want to do sales. She doesn't want to learn how to create a website. She doesn't want to learn how to make PDFs. She doesn't want to blah, 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 all the non-knitting stuff. Well, she can find someone to do that. Maybe have a partner, maybe have some sort of, some sort of business partner. Maybe there's some kind of arrangement there, but you can't just not do that stuff and expect the business to, you know, pay your rent. It's, it'd be highly, highly unlikely. Yeah. So you don't, I mean, you could, you know, of course, if you've got a business partner, you're probably splitting the profits. So now you've got a higher hill hill to climb. But if you know, you're not going to do that stuff, then the solution isn't to just not do it and keep your fingers crossed. The solution is to find someone to do it. Mm-hmm. That's fair. That makes sense. Um, just to kind of give some insight into how the artists that I know are thinking when they say, I love making this thing. This is all I want to do. Um, so a friend of mine, um, let's call her Susan. She was working on a, a felted, I think it was a cat. <laughs> she, it was something she was experimenting with, um, and she really enjoyed the process of making this. And this little cat was, I don't know, two inches tall, um, you know, barely weighed an ounce. And, um, but it took her about, I think, like 30 hours to make. Because with felting, you take, your, take this kind of ball of fluffy cotton, and you just kind of put a needle in it over and over and over. And then eventually you kind of make a shape out of it, and then you have your cat or your whatever. And it takes a long time. It's a tedious process. And she really loved it. She loved the results. She loved the process. And she thought, well, it would be kind of cool if I could just make these and sell them. But how can I uh, sell this at a price point that somebody would be willing to buy um, while also recognizing that it took me like nearly a week to make one of these, never mind you know, the scale I'd have to get to for a business? Uh, what's your insight on that? I'll just sell it for $3,000. 
<laughs> Who's gonna buy a felt cat for three grand? No one, right? Unless yeah, exactly. unless it was like unless it was like Barack Obama's felt cat. Like there needs to be some story there, or or she's super famous. You know, you could you can get there. I mean, like uh, if you become a celebrity of some kind, maybe even maybe it's just a celebrity in the felting world. You can start to charge more because then they're not just buying the felt cat. It's more of an artifact of the story that they're supporting you and this artist. And uh, they want to bring it to their whatever, their fiber arts group and say, look what I got from, you know, famous Susan uh, Felter. Look how great it is. You know, so there's there's that. That's totally possible. The kind of Banksy model where it doesn't appear to be any kind of business acumen happening it's just this person who just keeps doing this thing and has made a name for him or herself i don't know and you know now paintings auction off for over a million dollars you know it that is that is a path it's a probably a really long path and really risky uh, a an alternative might be so okay so she did this one she did this cat felt to the cat really enjoyed the process learned how to do it figured it out all right, do it one more time on video and then send the video to somebody to edit for $5 an hour and put it on Udemy or put it uh, or sell it on Ravelry. I don't think they sell videos on Ravelry, but uh, Craftsy or Teachable or wherever. So she gets to do it again. She gets to perfect it. Um, she, you know, records this video and perhaps she can sell the, the felt. I mean, I can't imagine getting, you know, for, for an unknown artist to get more than 30 bucks for a, a felted cat seems about the limit um, at the most. But now she's got this extra thing that she did once. She had somebody else edit and she posted somewhere and now she can do a very little bit, a very little bit of, you know, perhaps daily marketing work, like 10 minutes a day of marketing work to promote that video. And uh, bring in way more than $30, way, way more than $30. And while she's, while that's happening, she's created that asset for herself. She can felt a dog or she can, she can knit a cat or she can crochet a cat or she can do experiment with some other thing, figure it out, learn it and teach it intro level to, to someone in a video. And I know that these are just sort of, um, general examples. There's probably a million felting videos on YouTube already. Uh, so maybe it's not the perfect example, but just to illustrate the, the way that I look at it, it's like, okay, I can't, where, where do I find leverage where my level of effort dramatically drops, but my prices can go up and, or I can sell more volume at, a, at the same price without having to do the felting every time? Does that a fair answer? Or do you think that that's, you know, it's, if you said that to Susan, what do you think her response would be? Um, personally, I think Susan wouldn't love the idea of having to be a marketer on top of being an artist. But I agree with what you're saying. I do understand how you're taking this one thing, this felted cat, and you're looking for multiple ways to profit off it effectively. Rather than just selling it and then it's gone, you can create a video, like you said, or whatever else and sell that. And especially if you sell a digital thing, something on the internet, you can sell it um, with no uh, quantity limits, right? You can sell it infinite, infinitely. And... Um, you know, I make money forever if that if it works out that way. I do think, I do think, I mean, I understand all this. This is something that I do myself, but I do think a lot of um, artists and creative types in general, uh, they hear this and they think it sounds too easy. You know, they're aware, especially working in the arts, they're aware of how difficult their line of work is in general in terms of making any money to live on. Um, so then they hear this and it sounds kind of like another a little bit of magic or something that they kind of look at sideways and think, is it really that simple? Could I really do this? I mean, I'm not saying it's not work, but those are the components of having a business. And if you want to make a living at doing your art, there needs to be a business built around it. I mean, so it's kind of like, it's kind of like, uh, other than becoming a celebrity, I don't, you know, there, there's no other, I mean, look, I, again, I'm a musician. Like that was my, I wanted to be on the radio back when that was a thing, you know, I'm 50 now. So this is going way back to the eighties, but the, like I wanted that. And, and it was, uh, I understood the, I understand the frustration of being like, well, I should just be able to like record 
a CD or tape or album or whatever and sell it and be able to live off that. I've spent all this time learning how to master my instrument and write these songs and, and do these performances and, and people don't understand. We're going to lose this art. You know, you get this sort of like angry victim mentality of like, people should respect my art. And it's like, okay, you can, you can do that if you want. I, I don't see that working for anyone though, when it comes time to like, you know, pay the rent. So rather than, I think rather than that approach, it's kind of like, again, if you don't want to do the marketing, just pay someone to do it. There's plenty of people who will do it for you. You be the artist and obviously you're going to have to pay them or rev share or something. And, and I'm not saying that it's easy, but it's kind of obvious what to do. I mean, there's work involved, but it's not complicated. And you just like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on felting a new thing. I'm going to do 30 days of, or, or 30, well, let's see how many weeks I'm in here. 50, 50 weeks of felting. And every week I'm going to do a different felted animal. I'm going to document the whole thing with just with my phone. I'm just going to like stick my phone here and create raw video and send that to someone to process it. And then my business manager, you know, just like bands used to have agents. My business manager is going to figure it out and make suggestions about, you know, what to do next. So, you know, I don't know if you don't want to do this stuff, it's someone needs to do it. And if, if this all sounds, I don't know. I, I feel like, um, I feel like there's a, there's a, uh, almost like a paradox here where people want to, they feel like you tell me if I'm wrong, like if they feel like they should be able to make a living doing something they love, but they're not willing to do the things you need to do to create an income stream from it. They think they are just entitled to it because they worked so hard or something like that. Is that summarize it kind of, or am I off base? No, I think you're right in terms of what I think a person has to do that they have to spread the word basically, which is what marketing boils down to just in a very effective way. Um, I think a lot of artists that I'm familiar with, they, um, one of the main paths they see initially to selling their work is to go to markets. In Toronto, we've had a boom of flea markets and stuff like that for the last five or six years. There's tons. There's one every single weekend, especially in the summer. And a lot of artists, they sell it basically all of them, and they hope to make money, and they hope to break even versus the cost of their renting a space and what have you. Um, so selling the work, and like that's how they see that they they themselves making their money and that's also what they enjoy as part of the artistic process as well it's just getting their work out there seeing people enjoy it i think they get a lot of pleasure out of that um and then when you talk to them about marketing i find and i you know i shouldn't be too general about this there's always exceptions of course but i find a lot of creative types kind of stick their nose up out of it not out of entitlement i don't think most people are um believe that they just make great work and should therefore sell and it's that simple <laughs> but um i think a lot of creative types see marketing as this kind of sleazy thing where you're manipulating people they're kind of lying you have to um you know make up some grandiose story that couldn't possibly be true about the product or service you're selling and then when it comes to marketing their specific work as much as they believe in whatever work they've created um they have a hard time wrapping their heads around how to sell it to a person. So beyond, you know, here's a really nice painting, it'll look great on your wall. You know, how could, how do they uh, communicate the value of their work to a person when that value is so personal? They painted this thing because it's about their personal feelings about whatever, um, or is there, you know, where they're experimenting at in their process and that kind of thing. So they don't know how to communicate that and they want to just, uh, this sounds simplistic, but they kind of just want to share the love, so to speak, and the work that they create. They have a lot of love in creating this work and they want to find somebody else who will love it just as much as them. Um, when, you know, I don't think people, that happens sometimes when people buy stuff, but that's not majority of our buying decisions. So there's just like a disconnect there for between artists of how do I sell this thing while being honest and kind of being true to myself and keeping the message of my work intact. I don't think this is an impossible bridge to cross. There, people have done it for sure. I think there's just a lot of mystery there for creative types. Yeah. So two, there's two big topics in there. One is like all marketers are sleaze bags, 
which obviously isn't true because if you, if you, the, the problem with the problem with that, the problem with marketing is really bad. Marketing is really easy to notice. So you get spammers and you get telemarketers and you get people who are basically making ridiculous claims, uh, bad info marshals. Those are the bad marketers. The good marketers are invisible. So, you know, think of three brands that you love and then go to their org chart. They have a CMO. Definitely. They do. They have someone doing marketing, whatever it is, Starbucks, Tom's shoes, uh, vitamin water, you name it. They have, you know, so think of, you know, dear listener, think of all the things you buy all day. Think of the brands that you really like. Maybe it's Apple, maybe whatever it is. And those companies have marketers and they do marketing and it's, and it's not gross. You're not noticing it. You don't feel like someone's uh, trying to manipulate you. You just, they're just sort of telling the story and explaining the benefits to you of this product or service. And you're like, yeah, that's awesome. I would, they could charge me more and I'd still buy it. And it doesn't have to be big brands. It could be your landscaper or your babysitter or whatever. It's somebody, babysitter is kind of an extreme example, but a, land, a business business, like a, like a landscaper or that sort of a thing. It could be the, the salon you go to to get your hair done and whatever. Uh, those people are doing marketing activities almost definitely, almost definitely. And those, and they're not sleezing you out. They're not grossing you out. You're not feeling pressured. That's why you keep coming back. So that's, that's one thing. So the summary of that is marketing doesn't have to be sleazy. Sleazy people do sleazy marketing. Awesome people do awesome marketing. So you don't, you don't need to feel that pressure. The bad way isn't the only way to do it. The other thing is the value of the thing. So it's the, the felted cat is worth a lot to Susan because she poured her heart and soul into it. She transformed herself through the, the course of the 30 hours to make the thing. She, she, made herself better. She learned how to do this thing. It was transformative for her. That same transformation is not going to happen in someone who buys it from her. The value of anything, absolutely anything is subjective. It's in the buyer's mind. And if the buyer doesn't see the value for the price, in other words, if the value to them is lower than the price that is that the thing is set at, they're just not going to buy it. And one of the, one of the pieces of marketing is connecting to the, what the, the feeling that the buyer is trying to achieve. So in other words, the, the challenge for an artist, uh, it's not, I mean, not just an artist, but I think particularly for an artist, because it's such an aspirational kind of purchase, nobody needs a felted cat. So the, the trick, and this is marketing is to figure out what about it that is authentic and pure and on mission for the artist? What about it is valuable to the buyer? If you're coming to buyers and saying like, oh, you know, let's say this, this felted cat is going to match. You know, do you have a bunch of blue stuff in your house? This, this cat is going to match perfectly your blue stuff. That's a very low value proposition. Or like I paint, you know, I, I do paintings on commission. Uh, send me a picture of your living room and I'll make abstract art that kind of matches. That's a really weak story. It's a really weak marketing story. Like I'm basically cranking out, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a not like a, just, just thoughtless. There we go. Thoughtless color patterns that are going to fill up space in your house. That's pretty weak. But if you have, if you have as an artist, I think if you've got a, if you stand for something and you make it really public and your, uh, uh, and your art supports that mission, then you can get enrollment from people who want to support the mission and feel the feeling of being a member of that group, member of that uh, sort of circle of people who believe in that thing. So you can imagine, I mean, just to take an obvious example, you could imagine someone doing really heavily super political art and, and just completely going hard on one side of the fence. I know you're in Canada, but in the U S it's pretty obvious what I'm talking about. So, if you, if you did that kind of art and it, and all of your art wasn't the same, but all revolved around that message and hammering that message home, you could charge a lot more for your paintings because there's going to be a core group of people who want to have that identity. They want to, they want to broadcast that identity. They want to have a conversation piece in their house. They want to 
you know, they want to, to have the, they want that effect that the, the art is going to make, you know, can you do that with a felted cat? I don't know. A painting is probably a little easier example, but there needs to be what's in it for the buyer. If, if what's in it for the buyer is this, oh, this is like a nice little tchotchke that you can put on your desk. It's low value. But if it's uh, an artifact of some major event, that's much higher value. So like if I want to buy this, this stapler, if you wanted to buy a stapler, how much would you expect to spend for it? Okay, what if I told you this particular red swing line stapler was in the International Space Station for 50 weeks? Yeah, but, but I would pay, pay 500 bucks. But here's the thing. I care. You don't. So the value isn't in the stapler. It's in the buyer. And if there's no story, there's no, and it doesn't have to be a fake story. I'm not talking about lying. I'm talking about a real story. Like, here's the story. This is how I got into needle felting. And, you know, my, when my mom got sick and she needed you know, this cozy thing. And if your mom's sick, maybe you want to learn how to do this too. And there's like a whole, it, it's true. It's not fake. It's just sort of revealing perhaps the motivation of the artist and connecting with the similar motivation in the buyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of thing. I like what you say about um, broadcasting your identity. Um, certainly with the political paintings example that you gave out, that obviously makes a lot of sense. But I, I can even see the, how that would work with a felted cat or some other kind of tchotchke because, you know, working in offices with uh, creative agencies and stuff, uh, one of the common things you'll see is a lot of people have stuff on their desks and a lot of them are toys or other kind of cool things, whatever it is that they like, or they'll have printed photos on the wall, that kind of thing. And that's really displaying their personality. They really made the little cubicle um, kind of a signifier of this is the kind of person that I am. They really are literally broadcasting their identity or their personality. And a felted cat is part of someone's personality. So <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great example. I have been out of the office environment for so long that never would have occurred to me, but you're 100% right. Um, where you're, it's kind of, they're conversation pieces in a way and you can, and they can be something, you know, in like the example of the painting, they can be really strong, like really broadcasting loud, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great example. So in let's, let's just say that, that, um, the Susan is really into needle felting and she wants to make this cat or whatever, and she can connect with people who do want to broadcast that they're crafty and organic and um, all the things that are, that are like her, you know, that, that caused her to be drawn to that in the first place. And there's like 7 billion people on the planet. So odds are pretty good that there's a few thousand that feel like she does, but maybe don't know how to needle felt would like to feel like they have some ownership over that. Uh, not ownership, but like com- uh, commiseration is the wrong word too, but connection to someone who does do this sort of thing, uh, in a, in a committed and deep exploratory kind of way. And it, when they look at it and when people come into their cube and they say, Hey, what's, what's that? That's cool. I've never seen anything like that. Oh, that's a handmade felted cat. It took the artist 30 hours to do it. She did it when her mother was in the hospital. Thank goodness that worked itself out, but you know, so on and so forth. Now there's a conversation piece. It's a, it's a story that gives a feeling it's all true. It's all authentic. But if you never reveal it and you just say, I'll make you a painting that matches your couch. Like there, that's, there's no story there. There's no nothing. There's nothing to grab onto. Mm-hmm. And I think the, again, the identity piece is very key, not just for the buyer, but for the artists. I think that's where a lot of artists and creative types come from. They're not just making work, like you say, like a painting that matches the colors of the room. They're making work that really uh, ultimately represents themselves or their beliefs or some personal aspect of themselves. So then being able to say, uh, you know, I'm a person who, you know, likes cats, for example, uh, that's part of my personality. So I made cat paintings and then, uh, you know, somebody else can go and buy that cat painting because, oh, I'm a cat person too. They're connecting on that level. And I think that's really meaningful to artists to say your personality and your personal vision and that kind of thing is still relevant and is still valid when it comes to marketing your work. It doesn't have to be something that you have to kind of whitewash and just hide away or to like, I've had, I've known a lot of artists and illustrators who have, um, kind of fallen into the trap or just felt like they had to make work that was culturally relevant at the moment 
So like this past few months, the Raptors, if you heard, did very well in Toronto. There's a lot of Raptors stuff going around the city, especially even in the art world as well. And I had some illustrator friends who felt like you know, they had his distinct style. And as all that was happening, um, they felt like they had to start doing work that incorporated the Raptors or dinosaurs or purple and orange or basketball or whatever. Because um, they figured they would sell prints. And they did, because people were looking for Raptors stuff at that moment. So they were riding that wave a little bit. Um, but these illustrator friends of mine, they don't watch basketball. They don't like sports. Yeah, I, I find it. I find it super ironic that that same person who's willing to jump on any fad that comes across just so they can move some product turns their nose up at good marketers. Mm-hmm. Like which yeah. is worse. So it's here's, true. here's one of the, here's one of the problems with, um, uh, what you just articulated about the, the way that you sort of rephrase that was amazing. Like the, to sort of share their, their, it's more than, it's more than them. It's not just like, Oh, I did this because me, 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 me. It's like, I see this, things are this way in the world and I don't like it or I do like it and I want more of it. And philosophically, this is my battle of good versus evil. And this is how it plays, gonna, it plays out in my work. Whatever the villain is, you know, everybody's got different villains or whatever, but my villains are these and, you know, is this one and this is what I'm trying to, I'm trying to overcome. People who are fighting that same villain are going to be like, ah, oh, yes, like this is the right, this is the right thing to do. This makes me feel like... I'm helping, I'm doing something good. And the, the tricky part for people can be, some people are just, in, artists are probably overrepresented in this group, are really shy. And they are not comfortable talking about themselves at all. And, or they've got some reason why they really do need, they, they actually need privacy. Again, Banksy comes to mind. He's doing illegal stuff or she, I don't know. Um, it's illegal. So, okay, it makes sense that you would, mask your identity. So fine, mask your identity. And you know, don't be the face of it, or downplay yourself as the face of it. But you have to it without the story. It's just another object that is basically worth the component parts and however much labor went into it, probably not even. So if there's no story attached to it, and there's no meaning, there's it's not in service of a larger purpose or mission. Yeah, the prices are going to be low. But if the, if, if you have that stuff, if you have, and you can tell it, you're comfortable telling it or communicating somehow, or even hiring a PR person to do it for you because you're just too, um, whatever you're either socially awkward or you just can't put the words together. Uh, it just comes out wrong. Get to get someone to help you with it. That's fine. It's still your story. And, uh, and that is, that is going to have a differentiating effect on your work. It's going to uh, have a polarizing effect on the audience. You're going to attract people who are on the same mission that you're on, or they want to be on the, or they want to support the mission that you're supporting. They want to, they want to follow you where you're going. They want you to lead them. And I mean, that's pretty intimidating, but it will, that's certainly a path to increasing the prices for your physical work, like your actual work and not, you know, not going down the info product uh, path. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would disagree that that artists are generally uh, uncomfortable talking about their work or, or are shy. Um, I run a talk series about personal passion projects of graphic design-ish projects. So there's some kind of art-adjacent projects in that mix as well. And I found that the, the people who are closer to fine art versus design were some of the best spoken people that I've, speakers that I've had on oh, this good. talk. I'm glad yeah, to hear that. I, yeah, I think artists have to write little bios and blurbs and stuff about their work all the time. They're going to be in galleries and publications. Uh, they give um, you know, opening night talks and stuff like that. So it's something that I've observed to be quite true that artists are good at literally speaking about their work. Um, I think when it comes to marketing that they might struggle with putting it into a context that a non-artist would appreciate or, you know, just a cat lover versus somebody who gets the felting part. You know what I mean? When you're saying they talk about the work, are they speaking to like other, let's use painters. Are they saying like, oh, well, I used this kind of brush and here's, you know, what I was, what kind of paint I used and like very technical to other, or are they talking about a mission and the, their purpose and why this exists and why they felt it needed to exist in the world? More about the why, like the technical stuff is in there, but um, with fine artists in particular, it's more about why they did what they did, the concept behind um, their work. 
the meaning behind any individual or any given element. Mm, um, it's a larger conversation. Yeah, it's not, oh, I'll use acrylic instead of oil. Good. Okay. <laughs> well, I hate to break it to you, dear listener, but that's marketing. So, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're talking about things at that level, I mean, even talking about technique can be marketing, but, the, but it's probably to the wrong audience. So if people are comfortable doing that, then there's the, the, the sort of next level, the next um, kind of step up from that. Okay, so great. You, you're creating this work. You understand why you did it. You didn't just like let the brush do it. You just didn't splash paint on there and see what happened. You had a reason. There was a purpose. You did it now. If you want to amplify that, create a body of work that is all in service of basically the same mission. So like you become obsessed with a particular mission instead of changing it constantly. Like, oh, I'm really into the Raptors this week. So I'm going to, you know, paint about that. And then next week, oh, I'm really into chicken studies. So I did a series of chickens that doesn't, you know, that doesn't create a long enough narrative to get your prices up. So you can, it can work in these short arcs, but if you have a, uh, I'm not saying you can't do Raptors and then one week and chickens the next week, but it needs to be wrapped up in service or it helps if it's wrapped up in service of a bigger, here's why I'm on this planet. This is why I'm doing this. It all makes sense in the big picture. Uh, and that is going to have this, it's going to create, um, like this flywheel effect where everything uh, it creates it creates a momentum that becomes hard to stop after a certain point, so it becomes mm-hmm. a self sustaining thing. Yeah, I can see how kind of changing your your I guess your message to rappers and then chickens the next week might make sense if your overall uh, story is that I live in Toronto, therefore the rappers are relevant right now because there's a huge championship and stuff like that. Um, I'm not sure where the chickens would come in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's say there's a chicken team. I don't know. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I don't know. Well, you could. It could be that you're talking about that. It could be that your art is about fads, almost not quite like Andy Warhol, but pop art. You could be like, and this was the fad. That, you know, I'm chronicling the fads of every week of 2020. In 2020, I'm going to chronicle every fad that happens in pop culture in Toronto. All of a sudden, oh, interesting. The Chamber of Commerce is calling me. They want, or, or some big, you know, developer downtown wants uh, my artwork throughout the building, or because it's got a, it's like a theme and a, it's got a an arc to it. There's a story. Um, the 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 so that to me that is the next level up where you've got a longer story. It's a bigger arc. Uh, it's something you need to commit to, which can be a little bit scary because you don't want to pick the wrong thing. So you know, it's best to probably pick something that you know means something to you. Uh, versus a stunt, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go live on a commune for a year and see what happens and write a book about it. Like, that's a little bit more of a stunt if you don't really care, you know, you're just like, ah, oh, this will sell, you know, like, you know, like the, the sort of cynical people that made the Raptors artwork, but here's, so if then taking it up to the next level, like another multiplier is if you take some kind of risk with your work, if you're not taking any risks with your work, pff, what are you doing? You know, are you even an artist? So mm-hmm. if you're taking a risk, people completely are drawn to that. So what is the risk that you, you, cause, and you probably know what it is. Like if you're an artist listening to this, you probably know what it is. You're, and you're either doing it or you're afraid to do it, but you know what it is. So if you know what that risk is to reveal some, some part of you in your work that scares you to death or just to do something that scares you to death that is a multiplier on your value. It's a multiplier on your, your totally authentic, non-sleazy marketing because you took a stand, you had the courage to do that, this thing, whatever it was, and you did it. And people are drawn to that like crazy. And they'd be great people to have drawn to you because it's authentic and you and true and supportive and all of that. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about um, what kind of risks there might be for artists in that sense. I mean, first of all, and I think a lot of people would think this way if they're new to developing their business, is a financial risk. So, you know, spending a lot of money to get something printed very large, whatever, but I don't think oh, an audience no, not like necessarily that. care. No, yeah. not like that. Maybe like a story kind of based risk or a personal risk where you're revealing something about yourself. Yes. Like a rejection from society risk. Yeah. Right. right. Then don't you already have to have kind of 
a narrative about yourself or your work established so people recognize this is a risk. Because if you go right out the gate with revealing, you know, some horrible trauma from your past, people are going to think that's baseline. No? Mm. I don't know. I, I could sort of argue both sides of that. I think it depends on the nature of the risk. So it could be, you know, your, I don't know how to say his name, but the, the artist, I, I would phonetically say Basquiat or whatever that's doing political Basquiat. art. Basquiat. Basquiat, yeah. Okay. And I've never heard anyone say it. Uh, <laughs> or Banksy, who's breaking the law. Or, you know, um, there's, there's a local guy, Shepard Ferry was another lawbreaker. In, the, in those cases, they're risking their freedom, jail time. I, I don't, I don't know if I need a backstory there to be like, whoa, that person is serious, seriously motivated. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a political thing, but that is the obvious one. The obvious one is political, uh, but it could be plenty of other things. There's plenty of, of cultural norms that are, are just not tweaked. Like you're not allowed to tweak this cultural norm could be, you, you know, whatever. It could be gender related. It could be um, religious. It could be, uh, it could be about the nature of reality. You, you just raising questions that, that, you know, people in good company don't raise, if you know what I mean. I, I think those kinds of risks are, I, I mean, maybe, maybe this is just me projecting like those, those people taking those kinds of risks attract me. And I, I think that's fairly normal where it's like, wow, that was courageous. Um, so I'm not, I don't know if that addresses your question. You know, you were saying like, isn't that just the baseline? They, they had this bad experience in their past and now they're kind of trying to work out their demons type of thing. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's more, more of a risk to be like, certainly it's a bigger risk to uh, maybe stand up for First Amendment rights and put your freedom on the line in the U.S., so, mm -hmm. Something like that, where it's like, wow, this person really, really did something crazy. Like, like just as an example, one time I, I did something years ago where I, I did this thing called Jonathan's Card, where I posted my Starbucks card as a photo on my blog and invited people to download it and use it. And, and I did it out of excitement at the time because mobile payments were something very new. Whatever, I did it out of excitement. And then as soon as I did it, I was like, ah, oh, that might be fraud. Like, and, and I was like, I should take it down. And then I was like, mm, just see what happens. Like, it was almost like the angel and the devil were on my shoulders and like, eh, just see what happens. And, and it totally blew up front page of CNN.com. And you know, all these, all these other things happened because it was like, it was like, OMG, can he do that? Can someone do that? And the, the, ultimately the answer to the question was like, nobody knows seems illegal, but is it? And then, but so anyway, it was a, it was a risk. Like I could have, you know, it's not a risk like, Oh, I took out a second mortgage on my house to get this large format billboard <laughs> printed. Right. That's not a mission that people can get behind. I don't think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably not. I don't know. I, I don't know if, I don't know if we're just sort of going around in circles or if this is helpful to anybody, but I feel like the artist designer distinction is super important. Uh, I think the, oh, I'd love to make some money at this versus I'm going to start a business is super important. And if you do want to go, if you do want to go the path where you're just doing the work and you're not selling your know-how about how to do the work, then it's all about having a mission and taking risks and, and connecting with people who support the mission, you know, and kind of maybe, maybe leading them is over the top, but but being a beacon for a community of people who feel a particular way or wish the world was a particular way or whatever it might be. Okay. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I can think of popular artists right now who uh, are doing exactly that, like Adam JK, who's very popular on Instagram. Uh, visually speaking or artistically speaking, his work isn't much of anything, like no offense to him, but, <laughs> it, you know, but I mean, his work is largely written text. He's got this kind of handwriting style. I don't know if he's turned it into a font or he still handwrites every single piece, but he's got this particular look and it's that text on a color field. And he has a few different colors, I think, that he uses in his palette. And that's what it boils down to. And the messages are generally kind of self-helpy, sort of uplifting, uh, take care of your mental health kind of things. 
So you know what you're getting from him at this point. He's been popular for a few years, so you know what's kind of what's up with with his work. Um, and it's it's huge. Like uh, he definitely wasn't popular immediately the first day he posted something, but I don't think it took too long for him to gain popularity. And now he's selling so many products with his work on it and books and tote bags and whatever. Um, but yeah, people really resonate with this story because he does share certain parts of his life. I think he posted his own wedding a couple years ago on Instagram, um, and people really connect to this. Yeah, it's all about the personal story with him. The work is there and it's important. People do enjoy it and purchase it, but it's about the story he's sharing. Right. Yeah. It's almost like buying a ticket to his world. You know, I, I've got that. I didn't hear. What was his name? Uh, Adam JK. Adam JK. Yeah, it's like I've got my Adam J.K. Uh, uh, tote bag or pin or yeah. bumper sticker. I'm mm-hmm. broadcasting to people around me who get it that I'm one of them, you know? Yeah, yeah. And his style is recognizable at this point, so you don't even need his little name in the corner or whatever. Mm. Somebody who knows recognizes that work immediately and then therefore knows something about you, which I guess is the whole point. Right. Yeah. It's like shrimp heaven now from a bim bam, which probably 99% of the people listening have no clue what I just said, <laughs> but the people who do get it are laughing their heads off right now. You know, it, sure. and that's, it's a <laughs> podcast that is a comedy podcast and, and, but, but the, the people who run it, these three brothers, they stand for something and they live it. They represent it totally authentically and they're also hilarious, but the feel good feeling that you get from supporting them is more than just, Oh, these guys made me laugh. I should throw them five bucks on Patreon every month. It's more like we need more people like these guys, not because they're funny, but because of what they stand for. And it's almost like paying for the art is just a way to hope that they keep going. (laughs) It's like, I don't even care if I get a tote bag, you know? So Anyway, I, it's easy to, it's pretty easy to see examples of it working. The, the hard part I think for a lot of people is, is seeing the path from where they currently are, where they feel like, you know, they're trying to sell a felted cat for 50 bucks and everyone's just laughing at them to a place where they're leading a movement. <laughs> it's like, like what, like what are the steps in between there? So I admit that that is, that's not. I don't think there's a handbook for that, but you can kind of tell when someone's doing it right and when they're not doing it right. <laughs> uh, gee, okay, so it's. Do you have any any parting thoughts? Do you feel like have we made any progress here? Yeah, I mean, this has been. You've really confirmed a lot of the things I've been thinking personally. I've been studying marketing uh, my, on my own for the last couple of years to understand. Uh, how to sell, not my own work, that's not so much what I do, I run events for creatives, so I'm trying to communicate to them how much value there is in attending this thing, which is a little bit different, but not so much. Um, And as I've learned more about marketing uh, and business, running a business, owning a business as a creative, um, it's really excited me, and I've been trying to figure out how to communicate how great these things can be to a designer or an artist who wants to sell their faulted cats or whatever. <laughs> and that it's not necessarily as miserable an experience being a business owner or marketer as they might think right now. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Great. Okay. So we, I, I think we're more or less in agreement. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Margot. Is there a place that people can go online to learn more about you? You can see all the events and everything that I do for Toronto designers at torontodesigndirectory.com or Instagram at Directory. Fabulous. That was an excellent marketing answer. <laughs> Thanks. I applaud you. Been working on it. Excellent. Uh, great. Well, I, I hope people will check that out. I'm sure for folks in the Toronto area or people who know how to get on an airplane could probably stand to benefit from those things. Uh, all right. Well, that's it for this time around. I'm Jonathan Stark, and you have been listening to Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. The next time someone asks for your hourly rate, I want you to stop what you're doing and go to valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free value pricing email course. That URL again is valuepricingbootcamp.com. Hope to see you there. 
Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.